Hello and welcome to Wealth of Nations for Euromoney podcast series. My name is Chris Wright and I'm interviewing the leaders of some of the most significant and interesting sovereign wealth and pension funds in the world. Ontario Teachers Pension Plan is a much more influential enterprise than its basic mandate might suggest. Founded in 1990, the plan exists to administer defined benefit pensions for the school teachers of Canada's most populous province. It had 241.6 billion Canadian dollars under management as of December 31st, 2021, delivering retirement income for 333,000 current and retired educators. But that's not the half of it. It's also an asset class pioneer with influence not just across Canada, but the world. Teachers had its origins in legislation mirrored time and again for other pension plans and sovereign funds in Canada in the years since, which sought to split politics from investing. From the outset, that meant its investment professionals were permitted and enabled to take a very long-term view and to set compensation arrangements that supported that approach. The result of that was a truly groundbreaking organisation that was never afraid to try something new if it appeared to be the right thing to do. As we'll learn, it had an instrumental role in the development of infrastructure and private equity as asset classes, which would go on to permeate not only the way public sector funds were managed in Canada, but also worldwide. Today, Teachers invests in more than 50 countries and has one of the most nimble asset allocation models of any institution of its size. Joe Taylor joined Ontario Teachers in 2012 after 20 years at the 3i Group. Initially head of the London office, then leader of the Strategy for Global Development, he became president and CEO on January the 1st, 2020, which it's fair to say was not an ideal time to start. In the two and a half years since, the fund has set to navigate a global pandemic, war, rising interest rates, inflation and a worsening climate emergency. But before we get to that, we ask him to set the scene of how Ontario Teachers' history of innovation plays into its approach today. I guess when many people think about a pension plan, they think about sort of a large, slightly grey institution that sort of has um, solidity to it, but maybe not too many sort of exciting features. And that is not Ontario Teachers. Um, Ontario Teachers has always been a very innovative, um, agile, um, I think quite a brave institution in terms of trying things out. It was the first Canadian pension plan of of what you now see seven or eight of them where essentially the Ontario government decided for one community, i.e. the teachers in the province, they wanted to manage the um, essentially their liabilities around future pension exposure and decided the best way to do that was actually to get in a professional investing team to actually see if they could deal with those challenges for for the future. And a big, um, a big help for us, actually, I would say, was firstly how the plan was set up initially. So the plan was set up with a, an independent board and actually a very independent management team able to pick the best people to be able to invest the money required to make the returns for, for the for future pension commitments. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, that team, really from the outset, chose to do some non-typical things. So you might imagine a Canadian pension plan would sort of largely invest in stocks and bonds in Canada. And within 12 months, we're investing outside Canada in alternative assets like private equity and infrastructure, which in those days, you know, 30 years ago, was actually pretty groundbreaking stuff, probably a little less so today. And it's really carried on in that theme ever since. 
Mm. Well, you're seeking to, uh, if not reinvent, but refine further. So let's talk a little about the strategic plan which you announced last year, quite bold in its enterprise, seeking to get to $300 billion, uh, Canadian dollars, I should say, in net assets by 2030, uh, 50% of private investing activity outside of North America and $70 billion of new private investment over five years. They're big targets. How will you get there? I mean, it, 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 every every investor really has the same set of issues. I would say, Chris, which is to say, firstly, how do you how do you decide the balance of your portfolio, and what level of risk are you willing to take for the returns you're trying to secure to supply that growth for the future, and then really, it's a question of how international you're choosing to be in terms of diversifying the portfolio and securing growth opportunities. So if I back up to your question, if I may, um, the 300 billion was sort of, it's a lovely round number. It was about 50% more than the 200 billion when I started a couple of years ago. But it is actually the number we've calculated through our modeling that we need to secure by 2030 to make sure the plan remains fully funded. And that fully funded status is really, you know, my fiduciary duty and the core focus of all of the team here, excuse me, at Ontario Teachers. Um, the second thing that um, is, is the issue really in answering a question, how do we get there, is actually also deciding how you want to engage the market. So we are unusual to many pension plans in that over 80% of what we invest, we invest with our own team directly. So we have a team of over 400 investors all over the world whose job it is, is to invest in, in things, you know, listed markets, private markets, which I can explore more with you, and also, um, you know, fixed income commodities, a range of products, which actually give us the balance of returns that we want. And that's really helpful for us, really for, for two specific reasons. So firstly, if we invest the money ourselves, we have more control over the performance and the behavior of the companies which we're associated with. And secondly, if we invest ourselves, we don't pay fees and carry to other people, which dilutes our returns significantly, probably by about 600 basis points we've worked out over the piece over time. And that's really helpful, and it makes sure that we are actually able to show market-leading and market-facing returns for what we do, where our performances track very closely to benchmarks for each of our asset classes. Interesting. Now, this point about having such capability internally is interesting because around the world, pension funds and uh, sovereign wealth funds, as you know, have uh, quite diametrically opposed ideas around all of this. I wonder at times of stress, and these are, I don't need to tell you, exceptionally uh, difficult times for investors, is there a particular benefit to having an in-house team when markets are unruly and a little unpredictable? Well, we believe that to be the case, as you can imagine, from the fact we built up a significant team around the world, which is not inexpensive to do. Um, if I just digress slightly, um, as, as you rightly pointed out, we, we do have a strategy. Um, it, one of the core pillars of our strategy is in impact. And that impact for us is actually we, we, what we say to our members is absolutely we invest to make a return for them. We invest to make sure that they do not have to have anxiety when they come towards retirement. But equally, impact to us is investing to make a mark. It's investing to actually 
make a difference in the world where we operate. And this to me is really important. It's, it's often discussed, but it's quite hard to walk the talk, so to speak, where for us impact is, you know, we've got some very clearly stated carbon reduction targets and carbon intensity targets. So we are keen to make sure we do our bit for climate. Um, and equally, investing to make a mark for us an impact is all around actually making a difference in terms of how we show up and how we behave socially in the world where we operate. So we have very clear views around how we want our businesses that we invest in to actually do the right thing and do things that are improving beyond things like climate. So diversity, equity and inclusion would clearly be one. We've you know, been very clear that we want at least 30% of women on our boards as well as women in our senior executive teams. We want to actually make sure there's fair pay and appropriate behaviour about supply chain sourcing. There's a number of issues that we follow through there where actually we feel if we, if we invest in the right manner, not only the businesses that we invest in will thrive and become better companies through our custodianship and ownership, but also the communities they serve will actually be much better for them being in existence. And where that's important is it's really easier to deliver that vision if you're backing growth companies rather than backing companies that need to restructure and reorganize where that becomes more challenging. Yes, yes, no, that's well said. Now, you, you alluded just before we started this podcast to uh, the fact that you, you took on the chief executive role about two and a half years ago, and that period of time has embraced a pandemic, a war, rising rates, rampant inflation, supply chain disruption, and indeed the aftermath of pandemic, an extraordinarily difficult environment. As a chief executive, how do you steward an investor or a fund as crucial as yours through uh, such a difficult landscape? Well, well, it isn't easy. And I'd have to say that uh, what I've experienced was probably a little bit more challenging than I might have guessed before asking, uh, being asked to do the job. Um, I'd probably say this. Um, the key question for teachers is how do we assess the level of risk that we want to take as well as we are taking in our activities? And then secondly, are we getting paid for that risk? So our dynamic is different from some other pension plans. So we actually start the year with a cash outflow every year between the contributions we get into the plan and the payments we make out to members. And that inevitably means we have to adopt a slightly more cautious or conservative outlook in terms of the portfolio composition we would have versus some other sovereign wealth funds and large Canadian pension plans that we, we partner with on a regular basis. And that makes us very clear and uh, focused on how do we assess risk and how do we actually make sure we're making the right returns. So I would say the challenge at the moment is those risks have changed through the impact of COVID, the war in Ukraine, and actually some of the geopolitics we're seeing around the world. And we have to be actually nimble and agile enough to be able to articulate to actually reassessing what returns we want to make on the risk we're taking in certain asset classes and countries, but also what categories of asset classes we want exposure to. So to give you an example, when, we, when, when I started at Teachers, about 45% of the portfolio was in fixed income or bonds. 
And that would be quite normal for a pension plan where we have the dynamic I've just described of, you know, trying to be careful about risk exposure and composing a portfolio. Um, by the end of 2020, we had almost no exposure to fixed income because we decided it wasn't going to make us any return. And we switched the best part of $100 billion into other products. And not many organizations can do that in that sort of time frame. And we switched pretty aggressively into similar products to give us a return, but they'd actually give us a better return than the low or negative rates we're seeing on fixed income. So things like real estate and infrastructure, we've invested heavily in those two categories to give us an alternative to fixed income. And we also made a significant investment in private equity and some other private asset groups. Back to your comment, you know, we had a target of about 70 billion to be invested in private assets over a five-year period. And what we've done more recently, because the other big challenge for a pension plan like ours is inflation, is actually to say, how do we deal with inflation? Because all our liabilities are inflation linked. Um, so we try to then find something that can actually give us some control as much as you can have it um, over inflation. So we now have moved some of our portfolio again at the, really during the start of this year into a significant weighting in commodities and inflation-sensitive assets purely to deal with that, that risk category. So I hope you're getting an impression that we're, we're quite nimble. We can move our, our allocation around the portfolio to different asset groups. And the trick really is to assess the risk and actually saying, are we making the right return? And in some, some categories at the moment, we've assessed that the returns are reducing and therefore we'll have to again be able to switch out into other other asset groups. Yes, you are remarkably nimble. Uh, very few other funds would do it, partly through reason of, I suppose, psychology, but also sometimes through charter and mandates. I think a lot of places don't actually have the technical freedom to move as swiftly and as completely as you have done. That's uh, It's quite uh, a lot of freedom you have there for movement, clearly, and uh, uh, which must be, I suppose, both an opportunity and um, well, something to take, not to be taken lightly, I guess. Yes, we're very fortunate. I mentioned when we at the start of our conversation when we set up the plan, you know, we have an independent board. And what that board has done for me as the CEO is delegated quite a lot of the decision making around portfolio composition for this point and other things. But there are very clear risk parameters set down where we stay within bands of risk. So as long as we're in those bands, we have a lot of flexibility to actually move to where we think we can make the right returns for the plan. That's really helpful and it allows us to be agile and also to experiment. I mentioned innovation, you know, we, we, we do experiment in new asset categories. So we're doing more in credit at the moment, which is an area we think is interesting within the risk, risk profile stack of businesses. But also we, we launched recently the uh, Teachers Innovation Platform now called the Teachers Venture Growth Platform which really allows us to go from, you know, early stage venture all the way through to infrastructure and, and real estate as longer term, lower risk asset categories. Well, let's talk about some of those asset classes in detail and what you've been uh, achieving there and learning from them. Uh, you mentioned credit. Let's start there. T tell me more about what you're observing there and where the opportunities are. Well, credit is, is an interesting asset group in that by nature, it's rather cyclical. You know, credit tends to be you know, in demand or not, depending on where you are with other with other alternatives. 
And I think as, 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 a, as a global view, we see credit being more in demand in certain countries than, than others. So, for example, we see credit as an interesting product in India at the moment in terms of the flow of capital around that country. Um, what we're trying to do, obviously, is build further capability. We have a great team in Toronto, but we want to, to internationalize that to some extent in places like London and in Singapore. Um, and actually, for us, the question is, um, what sort of businesses we would find interesting from a credit opportunity. So that could be in larger listed companies potentially or equally as a layer of investment in some of the private companies we know very well, largely from historically investing in the equity slice of that particular opportunity, whether it's growth equity or it's a change of ownership buyout opportunity. Um, the real issue for credit, for me, if I picked out one issue is, um, you, you can generally get interesting rates of return at a point in time in the cycle, but once those rates of return look quite full, you get refinanced. <laughs> so you actually have to be an active investor to maintain a material credit book over a period of time. And in our case, you know, we're probably looking to increase our exposure to you know, around 10% of the plan by 2030. You know, and that, that will take quite a lot of um, activity to actually not only build a portfolio, to maintain it being out there and exposed to companies versus refinanced through changes in the moment in the cycle. Um, and then really after that, I think it's the normal debate you have, uh, Chris, which is, do you want to invest in, in a credit slice in a business you already have an equity exposure? Or do you want it to be in a completely separate business? We tend to do the latter, but I think that's one of the issues we'd be reflecting on as we, we go forward. But we do think it's an interesting area. I think we can make interesting sort of high single-digit low teens returns on that slice, depending on what type of business and what level of debt exists. And um, I think we'll find with some of the grey or dark clouds on the horizon that we, we know are coming up through rising interest rates that banks will probably be a little less amenable to providing debt facilities in the way they have over the last five years or so, which I think will provide a credit opportunity. If Ontario Teachers stands out for anything, it's for its approach to private asset classes, chiefly private equity and infrastructure. When last disclosed at the end of 2021, teachers actually had more than twice as much invested in private equity, 55.1 billion Canadian dollars, than public equity. It had 11% of the portfolio apiece in real estate and infrastructure. It frequently goes directly into assets rather than through any third party, a recent example being a partnership with Corio Generation to develop 9 gigawatts of offshore wind around the world from Taiwan to Ireland. This is the culmination of an attitude that started early on. Few are more closely associated with the birth of infrastructure in particular as an asset class than Leo de Beaver, who started at Teachers in 1995 and spent more than nine years there, later going on to run the Victorian Funds Management Corporation in Australia and then Alberta Investment Management Corporation, a Canadian sovereign wealth fund. I was running a division in Teachers, uh, which was called Research and Economics. Um, what it really did was it set the asset allocation. It did analysis of quantifying risks in various places. And in that process, uh, we realized that there were certain things that we were not investing in that had a, an above average return on risk. 
and infrastructure was one of them. Mm. And uh, it was not a very popular notion, by the way, because as I've been discovering later on in my career, the status quo is a formidable opponent, and uh, the status quo had no box or infrastructure. So fixed income would say, well, look, why would you want to do that? It's a lot more risk than fixed income. And then the private equity would say, well, why would you do that? It's a lot less return than private equity. And But I had a boss, Bob Bertram. He was as passionate as I was about a very simple thing. We need to do what's best for our clients, our pension clients. And um, if that's a bit risky and unusual, that's, that's just the way it has to be. And the reason we could do this was in part that we had uh, strong support from our board. We had a very impressive board run by a former governor of the Bank of Canada and uh, a former president of Toronto Dominion Bank. And they encouraged us to do what I just described. In other words, find better ways and cheaper ways and more asset classes with more return and opportunities with more return. So that was the genesis. The background of this is that pension funds by nature are very conservative organizations. And we were different in the sense that uh, Bob Bertram felt he was given a mandate to do things differently and better, and he did. And that required gave us a reputation, particularly when I started investing in infrastructure and timberland and commodities. And we had all good reasons for doing all these things. But as I indicated before, it was not just internally a hard sell. It was something that very few organizations were doing at the time. It's this attitude and background that brings us through to Ontario Teachers today. We've been investing in private equity for a long time, literally within a year of our our establishment. Um, it's been the single best performing asset class in our in our sort of stable, so to speak. And we've made virtually a 20% net return over the life of our activity there, which is market leading, you know, I would say across the world. Um, we like private equity because actually it provides us with has provided us with regular sustained returns in different in different uh, territories. So we've made great returns in the Americas, Canada and in North America, but we've also made good returns in Asia and Europe as well. And I think that's not always the case across some asset categories. You know, you have a regional uh, good performance, not necessarily international. We have some private equity that we advance through third-party managers. So we've been LP investor in one of their funds. We do that for, uh, for three reasons, if I could say it. Firstly, we, we learn. We actually build better knowledge of what they're doing and why they're doing it so our teams can improve their own sourcing and judgment. Secondly, it broadens our ac- access to opportunities because they have their own networks, which can be different to ours. And then the final point is we, we often use them sometimes in new territories where we're not really very expert yet, and we would like to get local expertise as we build our capabilities. And that's particularly been true for us in Asia as we started to build our expertise in that region. Um, and I would say that um, we're an unusual, we're quite an unusual business, again, in pr- the private equity world, in that we both do direct investments on our own as a control investor, 
but we'll also be a minority investor working with another private equity firm or an LP investor in their plan. So we cover all of the bases of private equity. And to be able to do the first one, which is to be a control investor where you're either the sole or the lead investor in a, in a company, you really do need to have the sector understanding and the uh, expertise in terms of transacting, which means we need to find investors who are probably of a different standard and category than you might do essentially providing funds to third-party managers for them to onward invest in private equity. In the next episode, we'll look in more detail at Ontario Teachers' most recent results, which showed an 11.1% net return for 2021. We'll look at where that came from, talk about the challenges of chasing private markets when the whole world seems to have decided they are the answer to every question. We'll discuss teachers' approach to innovation and venture growth, some specific deals, renewables, and navigating these treacherous investment conditions. Please keep listening. This has been a Euromini podcast written and recorded by Chris Wright with editing by Stefan Inglis.